Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, author of fantasy romance, romantic fantasy, and other things. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. The lingering note of the chime. Today is Monday, October 18th. Birds are singing. We're supposed to have a run of nice weather. I don't know. Does that count as singing? That sounds like um, squawking, chirruping. Not sure what the deal is. Ah, coffee tastes good this morning. How are all of you? <sighs> so let's see. What are what are we here to talk about today? Um, I had a nice weekend. Pretty laid back. Um, went and had lunch with Megan and Charlie yesterday. That was fun. We had a long conversation about bad art friend. Megan um, is also a writer, although she's stopped for a while and, and now she's working on some things. So that's nice. She has a full-time job. So, and that's consumed a lot of her energy over the last several years. But um, it was interesting because she introduced a topic that I hadn't really gotten into on the whole bad art friend thing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll probably have to go back and either Google it. It's easy to find or um, check out uh, some of my podcasts from last week. But she was talking about an occasion when uh, somebody kind of stole from her. Um, You know, and it's funny because Charlie is not a writer and we were talking about the whole idea that we joke about it a lot and but there's truth to it also that if you are friends with a writer that your life becomes fodder for for their stories and I don't know I don't know how true I feel like that is um I, I get asked that question in interviews fairly frequently. Like, have I ever based a character on someone? Have I ever like killed a character that was someone I didn't like in real life? And the answer is really no. Um, for me, storytelling is very separate from the people in my life that does not mean that I'm not inspired by things I see going on in real life. Um, I learned something very interesting. This is kind of an aside by swear it is on topic, but you know, we, we promise nothing here at first cup of coffee. Um, I think it was Jim Sorensen was telling me this story that, uh, with the January 6th insurrection, when there was so much pressure from Trump and his cronies on Mike Pence to get him to throw the count of the electoral college. Uh, and this is pretty well established that this was the plan. And it's fascinating to read the, um, the breakdown of how they were going to get around the electoral college vote. And, and it could have worked if Pence had done what they wanted him to do. And so Mike Pence was under tremendous pressure to 
to throw this count the way they wanted him to throw it in order to keep Trump in office and subvert the election. And Pence called fellow Indiana senator former former senator Dan Quayle and asked him for his advice. And Dan Quayle told him you can't do this. This is going against the foundations of our democracy. It would be uh, it would be wrong. You 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 can't do what they're telling you to do. And it's such a perplexing thing to me because Dan Quayle has been such a figure of um, comedic I don't know. He's like a buffoon, uh, you know, and, and Jim was, I, it must've been Jim. Cause he was really challenging me on this. He's like, why do you think that about Dan Quayle? And for the record, I am older than Jim. And I remember when Dan Quayle was vice president, um, you know, and, and Jim was like, well, what is it beside, you know, like he couldn't spell potato and you know, so it's like, I don't know. I, I, I was, uh, what a teenager then. So, maybe I bought into like the, you know, the media depictions of his buffoonery. Uh, I remember that about Gerald Ford, how they always made fun of Gerald Ford's clumsiness. So I don't know. Um, but it, I find it hugely ironic and fascinating that like Dan Quayle emerges from this story as the, I don't know, the arbiter of integrity. Um, (laughs) so that's, and I want to put that in a story because I mean, that would be a great long, long thread to weave. And I don't plan my books that way. So I don't know if I could do it, but it would be great to have those sorts of characters in an epic, a very long epic. I wonder if I could carry it off because like I said, you know, my characters tend to to run off with the story and but things like that inspire me and I learn things from people all the time like that and I guess I would probably no I don't think I don't feel like so here here's one of the um, the conundra right is what I have to ask Jim can I use that story well probably not because uh it Jim gave me the piece of information, but it's part of our larger political scope. The thing Megan was talking about was, um, having been with someone else and given them sort of the idea for a story, uh, unwittingly and, and having that whole thing turn up later. And, and she was like, oh, there's my thing. Uh, and I said, well, you never said anything to me about it. She said, no, cause I didn't want to be that person. And it's like, well, you know, I understand that too. I remember a time back when I was with uh, my first critique group uh, back in Wyoming that, um, one of the gals in the group had had a, had been orphaned at a young age. She was the youngest of a number of children and her father was roughneck and he was killed, uh, in, uh, oil drilling accident of some sort. And one of the other gals in the group who was a closer friend of mine, uh, had gone with her, uh, was fascinated by this story 
and fascinated by all things Wyoming. And there was, there was always a little bit too of this, um, people called them the Wyoming wannabes, you know, like people who came to Wyoming and kind of wanted to be part of that culture so much, um, which was also perplexing to me. I don't feel like I was, I lived there for over 20 years. So I feel like I earned some sort of, um, Wyomingness, if that's something one earns, but it's one of those places where if, if you weren't born there and sometimes like if you're, uh, parents weren't born there, then you don't count. You know, there's, there's all of these, um, sort of belongingness tests. Anyway, so the two of them went on this excursion to go see the site of this, um, oil rig explosion and the town, which was a company town that had since become a ghost town. And the, and after that, the gal who was my closer friend, um, and whose story it wasn't came to the group with an essay about this whole thing about going to see this and, and about the other gals traumatic childhood and how this disrupted their family and this whole thing. And it was funny because I mean, she, she gave it to the group to critique. Right. And, and we all got there and the gal whose childhood this was about was very angry. I mean, angry in a way I had never seen her. And she said, this is my story this is my life. This is my story and you don't get to write about it. And, and my friend was really taken aback and she's like, but, but I was there with you. And she was like, no, no, this is not your story. You may not write it. And we ended up after kind of like processing some of those feelings, which took a little bit of time. I don't know if we ever critiqued the story because, um, we were, um, I think, I think my friend said that she would, that fine, she would, you know, tear it up. And I think she kind of threw it out there as a, is there a word for that? Um, as a faint, maybe, you know, as a, you know, like people do in arguments when they're like, well, then fine. I just won't do that ever again. And which is always funny to me is sometimes my husband will do that to me. We'll be like, well, fine. Then I just won't do that. And I'll be like, okay, because that was the point of this whole argument is I do not want you to do that thing. So if you offering to not do that thing is not going to somehow make me feel guilty at this point, uh, I'm probably impossible to live with who knows, but I think she threw it out there as she said, well, I'll just destroy it. I'll delete it and destroy the story. And, you know, I'll take, you know, do the noble thing. And the other guy was like, okay. (laughs) because this is, this is the thing I would like you to do. Um, and I think she did. I, I never saw her publish it or do anything with it. I, and I think she felt bad, but I think she also never quite understood why that was a problem. Um, you know, and so it's interesting, what is legitimately our story fodder and what is not? you know, it's something that comes up a lot with cultural appropriation, which I know some people find infuriating, you know, they're like, well, so does this mean I'm only allowed to write about things that happen to me? 
you know, and what if I want to have a character who is not like myself? Does this mean I'm forbidden to do it? And it's like, no, but, but there's nuance here, people. And, and I think that was what my friend missed all that time ago was that nuance of, um, that this was a deeply personal story. If she had decided to write an essay about a company town and the oil company abandoning it after a devastating explosion and left it at that, I wonder if it would have been the same, but instead she delved into this woman's family and also a woman who's also a writer who, you know, felt like that was her story to tell. You know, it's, um, I, th- I think we have to be careful of, of why we do things. And, and that's been one of the interesting outcomes of the bad art friend story is that it seems like Sonia Larson did this, not necessarily in service to the art in great devotion to the art, which is what made that review of the story itself very interesting but that she really, really wanted to do a takedown of this other gal that she despised. So I think intention matters. I think intentions matters a lot. Uh, in the case of what happened to Megan, the person who took that, those details, um, they weren't deeply personal but it was still something that like that person learned from her and then used it in a story and it felt, um, like a robbery. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't agree that, um, that all writers are just simply pillaging stuff right and left. Um, maybe there are some who do that. I suspect our motivations are not always pure. You know, I come back a lot of the time to the story about the starfish, which I think can be a little bit of an irritating story sometimes. And yet I think about it a lot when this sort of thing comes up where, um, a person is walking along the beach and sees another person throwing starfish into the sea and asks what they're doing. And the person throwing the starfish, going and picking them up one by one and throwing them into the sea says, well, I'm, these starfish are, are stranded on the sand. And if I don't throw them back in, they'll, they'll die. They'll dry out and die. And the first person looks up and down the beach and sees, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of starfish and says, um, you, you can't possibly save all of these starfish. And the other person says, I know, but I can, I can save these starfish. And, and they, and the first person's like, well, how, how can this matter? I mean, the impact is so small and the person throwing the starfish says it matters to me and it matters to this starfish, you know, intention matters. It's the, whether or not we're able to achieve an impossible goal, a lofty goal or possibly impossible goal. Um, does that matter as much as our intention and what we try to do? Um, it can be confusing because we also have that saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think that's something else entirely, right? That's, um, having 
misguided intentions, having good intentions that have nothing to do with who you're trying to help or what you're trying to do. It's mostly a, um, it's a kind of blindness. So interesting thoughts. Um, curious to know what you all think. I did want to add a little thing about on my sticky note about some of the financial stuff that I posted. Um, I put some on social media. Maybe I'll try to drag those links out for the show notes. Uh, some interesting things about writers not being transparent about their finances, particularly when, uh, and I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast already. If I didn't tell me, go ahead and send me a note and tell me, and I'll talk about it more in depth because it is interesting to talk about. I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> Make the chimes ring. Um, that especially people who have, uh, some sort of sign assure that they come from money, that they have a spouse who makes a very good salary and has all kinds of benefits that then allows the writer to be a full-time writer and that it creates a misperception, especially among up and coming writers. I think I did talk about this here that, uh, that this is something they can also do that, you know, you can get by writing, um, you know, taking 10 years to write a book and occasionally writing an article for the New Yorker and that somehow that will magically enable you to earn a living, which it doesn't if you don't also have a trust fund. And, and so we were sort of having this conversation, um, partly in Facebook where I shared this and there are a lot of comments on there. Maybe I'll try to link to that post, but we were talking about the importance of transparency of you know, people who do have that kind of privilege fessing up to it. And one of my friends came to me and said, well, you know, sometimes it's not entirely comfortable to discuss those things because this is a person whose spouse makes a very good living, but also this person, uh, did very well in tech 20 years ago and got out at exactly the right time with very lucrative shares in a company that then exploded and they have a really, really nice nest egg. Um, and that they fully acknowledge was partly, partly making good decisions at the time, but then also a tremendous amount of luck, right place, right time. And it enables this person to write full time and to, and to be relaxed about it in a way that like, I don't feel like I get to be relaxed. Um, and the point that they brought up was this is not something that I feel comfortable bringing up in conversation because I believe in the transparency and how important that is. But at the same time, it's very hard to say to people, uh, in conversation, you know, like, well, you know, I did very well in tech and now I have a million dollar nest egg and I don't have to worry about money for the rest of my life. And so that really helps. And I can absolutely see the point there. And I say this as someone who, uh, definitely grew up in a family where you did not talk about money, um, that it, you know, I can hear my grandmother's voice in my head saying, you know, it's, it's not polite to talk about money. And, and part of it is, is, you know, like my grandmother and grandfather did have good money for a long time. And, you know, it, it makes people jealous 
and deservedly so, right? You know, you just don't, you don't flaunt things that you have that other people don't have. So I don't know how to strike that balance is, is an interesting question. And I'm, I don't know what the answer is. Let me know if you have thoughts. On that note, I'll remind you all that First Cup of Coffee is part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network, and you will find more podcasts that you love at frolic.media slash podcasts. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye.